This is Kendra Connor, worship leader at Christ Center Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. Please turn your copy or click on your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. It's not going to be the only passage that we look at tonight, but it's going to set the tone. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of, of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. God, we ask now that you would just bless the preaching of your word, that we would learn more about our enemy and the strategies that you have for us to have victory in our lives over him and his forces. It's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So if I said the names or the words, Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, Thanos. You may have some picture idea in your mind of a villain, of what is called in Dungeons and Dragons and other game playing systems, and also in internet vernacular, the BBEG, or Big Bad Evil Guy. So it's just one of the ways that that's abbreviated. And when we look at and talk about the idea of the Big Bad Evil Guy, we understand, as we remember, or rather, think of those names, Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, Thanos, etc., you name it, movies, television, books, all forms of media. Because the hero has no one to fight against, especially no one who's competent, then there's no real good story there. But while fiction might have some truly terrible vision, uh, villains, we have the most dangerous villain of all in real life, Satan. Satan. Because he is so strong, God wants us to be prepared to know something about who he is so that we can have victory over him. And that's why we started with Revelation 12, but it's not going to be our first passage tonight. Today, as we look at God's word, we're going to look at three symbols or pictures of Satan from Scripture that reveal to us what he is like so that we can know how to have victory in the spirit life as we have a big, bad, evil guy who is trying to destroy us. We're going to see three symbols of Satan that show us who he is, and we're going to be starting way back in the beginning. I know he put you here at the end in Revelation 12. Now flip all the way back over to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to see the first picture or the first satanic symbol. And if you've been in Sunday school long enough, you know exactly where we're going with this one. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first satanic symbol in scripture is the serpent. The serpent, also known as the snake. Looking at Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to 
the enemy, the big bad evil guy, the antagonist of our story as people and as believers, as Christians. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we find out some things about this serpent as we read. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We see at the very beginning of scripture that God wants us to know who Satan is, and he wants us to know why Satan is dangerous. In Genesis chapter 3, we see this picture of the serpent or the snake. And what we see from this text right off the bat is that Satan is crafty. He's crafty. He's tricky. He's shrewd, but not in the positive way that Jesus calls the disciples to be shrewd. He uses that shrewdness in order to hurt others to ruin lives, to damage relationships. And he is crafty because he has been on the job for a very, very, very long time, thousands of years. If you worked at your job for thousands of years, you would probably, hopefully, get pretty good at it, I would imagine. You would know it and probably your coworkers pretty well by that time. And Satan knows us. He knows God's creation and he knows how to manipulate and destroy God's creation very well after thousands of years on the job. He is crafty, but he was even crafty in the very beginning. It's part of the essence of who he is. And because he's so crafty and he's so tricky, we see him acting to destroy Adam and Eve from the very start. We see that he does this in a very tricky way, in a very shrewd and crafty way. He casts shade on God's goodness. If you look at the second part of the very first verse of chapter 3, we see here that he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What he's doing there is he's trying to get Eve to call into question the goodness of God. Up to this point, through the first couple of chapters, everything that God had created, it was established that it was good. And now Satan, arriving on the scene as the serpent, the first thing he does as he tries to call into question God's goodness with the woman, with Eve. And he says, are you sure that he's not holding something back or he's not being too restrictive with his rules? Which is funny, in a way, when you think about it, right? Because there are a lot of people that complain about Christianity because they feel like it's just a bunch of rules. And here we have in the Garden of Eden, they only had one, right? One rule. He said, you've got one rule, that's it. And yet, they fell. Humanity fell. And here we have Satan in that moment. He's kept throwing shade at God's character and his goodness. And he's saying, I think he might be holding something back for you, keeping you from something that you might enjoy, because maybe God has a different agenda than what he's telling you. And as Christians, that's something that we all struggle with as well. Because every day, Satan se seeks to call into question the goodness of God in our lives. His satanic forces put thoughts in our minds where is God keeping something from us if we try to live according to scripture? Are we missing out on the fun in life 
to be had by following what the scripture tells us is how we should live as a believer. Is God truly good or is he keeping things from us because he's this mean, over-restrictive dad in our lives? And this is something that Satan started in the very beginning, and he was quite good at it. He influenced Eve to make a choice that she never should have made, and Adam to do so as well. We see that he's crafty, and he shades God's goodness in, in the very beginning of Scripture. Not only does he shade God's goodness because he's crafty, he also does something else. We see that Satan is an expert gaslighter. Satan is an expert gaslighter. Gaslighting, for those of you who don't know what that terminology means, it's where you attempt to get someone to believe that reality is different than it actually is, for them in particular. That things aren't as they seem or as they are, and that they're actually uh, a different kind of person or living in a different situation, or, or things just aren't what they seem to actually be in truth and in reality. And we see Satan doing that here in verse 4. So Eve, in verse 3, reiterates what God said about not being able to eat of the fruit of the tree, but because she is bought into Satan's lie of God being this big, cosmic, meanie, no-no, bad, restrictive dad who doesn't want to have any fun, she adds something to it that God didn't actually say in the beginning. She adds that you can't even touch it, and God didn't say they couldn't touch it. And I believe that that's included here in the text because it gives us insight into what Satan's doing and into his strategy and his schemes. He said you can't eat of it. She bought into what Satan said about him holding something back from her. Did he actually say that? Man, he's mean. And so she went a step further and added, not even touch it. But here we have him gaslighting her as well in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. He didn't mean that. That's not how things really are. He was just saying that to scare and intimidate you so that you didn't do what he didn't want you to do. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is there that Satan wants Eve to think about the fact that maybe God is feeling threatened. And he doesn't want anybody to be as big and powerful as he is. He's trying to make her believe a different reality than is actually the case. God didn't mean what he said. Maybe that's what he said, but he had reasons for saying it, and they're not good reasons, so just do what you want to do. And he convinced her that this was her reality, that that was the God who created her, and that that's how he operated, and that she was missing out, and that she could have a better life by doing things her way than by doing things his way. And she fell. She fell. <laughs> because that's Satan's strategy. He's crafty. He casts shades on God's goodness in life. He gaslights us as believers into ignoring what God says is reality in Scripture so that we try to do things our own way and live our own way. And we try to, you probably heard it, your truth. What is your truth? It's a distortion of reality because there's only one truth, and that's God's truth. You can't have your own truth because God has truth objectively. And that's the objective standard by which we live. The moment you say, well, this is my truth, you're saying, I live in a different reality than is actually the case from God. So next time you hear someone say that, go, wow, that's a different reality entirely than what God says is reality in his word in scripture. But that's what God does. That's what he does, because he's crafty. So how do we beat the BBEG when he's a serpent and he's crafty in our lives? Well, the way in which we beat the BBEG is that we know God's truth. We know God's truth. We know the reality of Scripture. 
if he even taken a step back or even gone to God and talked to him about it. She would have known what the truth is and what reality is. But instead, she tried to do things her own way because she didn't know God as well as she should and didn't know what he was saying as well as she should. And much like when he communicated to Eve how she should live and how they should live, he communicates this to us in the Bible and Scripture so that we can know what the truth is and we can know what reality is so that Satan can't gaslight us. So we have to know God's truth. That's how we have victory over Satan when he's crafty and he's a serpent and he's a snake. We know God's truth. Are you struggling right now in your life with trying to figure out what is reality or maybe trying to live in your own reality outside of God's word? Where you know that there are some things that he said that are true, but you're like, ah, I'm going to do it my own way. If so, I want to encourage you to take a step back from all that. Get an objective look at how life really is according to Scripture and what God wants for you and with your life. And choose to live in that reality because that is the truth. That is God's truth and it is the only truth. So we see in Scripture the first satanic symbol is the serpent. He's crafty. He's tricky. He gaslights us and he casts shade on what is actually good in our lives. We see another satanic symbol in the New Testament, flipping over to 1 Peter chapter 5. So turn there with me, if you will, to see the second satanic symbol in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5. We see our second satanic symbol in Scripture is the lion. The lion. I've always been fascinated by the lion as a picture in Scripture. Because the lion is the one case where it is used to represent both Satan and Jesus Christ, which is amazing to think about, because that is what eternity is. It is warring lions, because both are pictured that way in the text. But we know that Satan is very different than Jesus Christ, very different. But what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter was written to a persecuted church, believers who were struggling with living for Christ. They were losing their homes, their families, their lives, literally. And interestingly enough, a lot of them were losing their homes, families, and lives in the Colosseum in the arena, where they were actually being eaten by literal lions. So when Peter writes this, he is sending home a very, very painful picture for a lot of people, probably, who lost people to actual lions. And it probably really resonated with them about how dangerous Satan truly is. When he says 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter is trying to encourage these Christians who've read this letter that Satan is, is a terrible lion. He, the things about him that they need to realize and see as they seek to live their lives of faith is first, that he's predatory. He's predatory. He stalks and his forces, because he's only one entity, Satan and Satan's forces stalk believers. Literally. Pay attention to their lives, look at their weaknesses, try to find an opening, and when they have that opening, they attack. And they tempt us, and they put situations in our way so that we're forced to make decisions about how we're going to live 
if we're going to live in faithfulness to Christ. They're watching. They are always ready and looking for weakness in our lives as believers. They are predatory. When I teach self-defense, I teach about the three kinds of bad guys, and I teach about the, the bully, the wolf, and the predator, and how they're different. The one thing that makes the predator different from the bully and the wolf is that you don't see the predator coming. Because they make it so, they make themselves so inviting and appealing that it's almost too late before you're in their trap. And Satan does the same thing when he tempts us with the things in life. After he's cast shade on God's goodness and made us question whether or not God is truly good, he then drops the hammer on us. When we move down a path where we say, God's holding something back from me, he's keeping something from me, he strikes. And that's what the predator does. That's what a predator does. They look for an opening. They look for a weakness. They worm their way in, and then they attack. We see that he's predatory. We see that his goal in the second part of verse 8 is to consume us. What happens when something is consumed? Think of your favorite food. It's you have the opportunity to eat it. It's put before you, or you go and you get it, and you eat it quickly. And then you go, oh, man. It's gone. There's absolutely nothing left because Satan doesn't leave a carcass. He wants to consume us entirely and destroy our lives in a way that is whole. So there's nothing left to take us off the board, if you will, and out of the battle. So it's not just to kill or to injure or any of that. He wants us consumed entirely so that our lives mean nothing for Jesus Christ. That's what he does as a lion. He consumes everything. He devours us. He's predatory. He wants to consume us, to destroy us and take us off the table so that we don't have any effectiveness for the Lord whatsoever. And he brings suffering. Look at the second part of verse 9. You all know how important context is because I preach it as often as I can whenever I see it and it applies in Scripture, which is almost all the time. So what is our context here? Well, he's trying to encourage them that Satan can be resisted because we can have spiritual victory. And he tells them, resist him, be firm in your faith. And he encourages them with something kind of interesting. It's almost, it almost seems like it's not related, but it actually is. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by a brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Peter is already addressed earlier in the text a few verses earlier, that he knows that they are suffering and that they need to be firm in their faith. Now, contextually, though, he talks about Satan, and in the same verse or verses in that context, we see that that suffering that they're experiencing isn't just circumstantial. It's not just bad luck. It's not something that's just happened to happening them to the where it's like, okay, you got a bad draw. It's that the suffering that you are experiencing is motivated and empowered by Satan. Because Satan wants the believers persecuted so that they are taken off the table, they're taken off the board, they're no longer a part of the battle. And he's all of his strategies are in that effort. And that's what we see here. We see that the suffering that he's talking about is tied directly to Satan himself and his forces. And I think sometimes we forget that that's Satan's agenda, is to make people suffer. He doesn't want us to just be wiped out and not be effective or any of that. 
He literally wants to destroy God's creation, which is us. It's us. And if he can make us suffer while doing it, all the better as far as he is concerned. Because that's part of his agenda. He brings suffering. He is the lion who is a predator and seeks to consume, ultimately to make God's creation and God's people suffer. He is truly a big, bad, evil guy. So how do we have victory over the lion? Well, first is we need to know the true lion, Jesus Christ, the lion of God. But in this particular context, what we need to know is that we must stay alert. Because Satan is alert and his forces are alert and they're prowling the streets and roaming the streets and we need to have our eyes open. Again, in self-defense, that's what I teach. That's how you avoid those people, the bad guys. In self-defense, the first thing is awareness. It's awareness. It's awareness in your spirit life, where you're looking at those areas where you struggle spiritually and looking at strategies with the people in your life to help hedge those areas of weakness so that you can have victory and be strong. We need to stay alert. Peter tells them, be sober-minded, be watchful, keep your eyes open. Know where the enemy is. Know where he can strike. Know where your weaknesses are. Be alert. We must stay alert. Does Satan know where your weaknesses are? He does. Are you making any effort in your life at all to try to hedge up those weaknesses so that you can't be attacked? Because we know Scripture gives us resources and we have other believers in our lives and in relationships who can watch out for us and watch our back. That's another thing when I teach people how to watch out for being attacked is I encourage the ladies in particular never walk alone in the city. Always take someone with you. Always go with someone else. Because you can only see here and maybe a little bit here. But if you have someone with you, they can see around you and help you watch and be alert. Just like believers. In those areas where you struggle with sin, you can have a brother or sister in Christ come alongside you on the journey. And they'll see those things and they'll say, hey, I see that you're being tempted in these areas, these issues. You know, there's, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you scripturally when I need to. But we don't walk alone. We stay alert. So we see the first, or rather see the second picture of the lion, our second satanic symbol in scripture. Now there is a third. So go ahead and go back to Revelation 12. So had you start out at the back, had you go to the front, now you're going back to the back again. All the way back to Revelation 12. Because we see our third satanic symbol, which this series is partially named after. The dragon. That's why it's called Disciples and Dragons. And in this text, we see the satanic symbol of the dragon. And we see some interesting things about the dragon. And if you look at the serpent in the beginning, and you look at where the dragon is now in the text, we see ultimately the end of the story. He's cast down. He'll be defeated by Jesus Christ. But it's important to know about the dragon, even though he ultimately ends up eternally losing, he's going to make sure that he doesn't lose alone. So we see here in the text first, and we look at the dragon, in verses 7 through 9, we see that he is powerful. Satan is powerful. Yes, God can give us victory over his, his craftiness and over his schemes and things, but he is powerful and we should not underestimate him and his ability to tempt us and to deceive us. We see here in Scripture he's personified as a dragon, and there is a battle that's taking place in heaven that we can't see. 
between angelic forces, both good and evil, because the dragon's forces are fallen angels. Satan is a fallen angel. So we have this war in heaven between the good angels and the bad angels fighting against the dragon, Satan himself. And we see that he attacked heaven. Look at that. Look at the phrasing and terminology here. We see that the dragon and the angels fight back, though they are defeated, and they're cast out of heaven. I love what God uses here for the terminology regarding him, and it's an amazing bookend. Because what do we have in Genesis 3? What is he described as? Now the serpent. Here in Revelation 12, we see him being cast out of heaven, and the words, or the words rather, that are used to describe him in verse 9, the great dragon and, or rather, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he is called that ancient serpent. That ancient serpent. Because I don't know about you, but in my storytelling, I love a good callback. So we see that here because God is the ultimate narrator and the ultimate writer. He is a callback to Genesis 3. That ancient serpent, Satan, the great dragon, the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 7 through 9 tell us that the dragon, Satan, is powerful. And he does something in particular very strategically with God's people, with believers. Not only does he cast shade on God's goodness to try to attempt to tempt us and deceive us, but he also casts shade on us before God. See what he's doing there? If you look at verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan and his forces have a full-time job, not only tempting believers and deceiving them and casting shade on God's goodness, but they also attempt to go before God and they say, God, you see what they're doing right there. You see them rejecting you. You see them sinning against you. How can you love them? Why would you send Jesus to die? Why would you die for them? Look at them. They don't care about you. They make jokes about you. They mock you. They take your name in vain. And yet, God loves us. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. But I think sometimes we take that too lightly, and we don't realize that that part of that war in heaven is Satan accusing us before God and trying to get God to turn his back on us like so many people do on him. The dragon, Satan, is powerful. He shades us for our sin before God. And we see that even though he loses, he doesn't want to do so alone. He's furiously focused on taking us down with him. Verse 12. So John in Revelation writes, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So he's, get excited. There's victory over the great serpent. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan has probably read the Bible more than anyone else in this room, undoubtedly. He knows it inside and out. And the reason why he knows it inside and out is so he can twist it. And he knows the end of the story. He knows that he is defeated. But he is determined to take as many as he can with him. And that makes him happy. He knows his time is short. And with that, he comes at us with a great wrath trying to destroy us. 
to devour us, to consume us, to deceive us, and to trick us into leaving God and trying to live for ourselves. He doesn't care if we follow him. He just cares that we don't follow God. And we see that throughout Scripture because we're constantly called to try to live our own lives in our own way apart from our Creator and apart from what he has designed for us in his goodness. So how do we beat the BBEG here, the dragon? How do we take down the dragon? Well, ultimately, we persevere. We persevere. We keep going. We keep fighting. We keep striving to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing our sin before God and receiving healing and cleansing. We persevere in the faith. And that's how we know that we're born again. There's, that's the only way to know with absolutely no question that you're born again is if you persevere. We keep fighting because we know the end of the story. We know that even if we're struggling in our own lives with particular sins or attitudes or thoughts or patterns, that ultimately there will be victory in heaven and with God. If we persevere and we keep fighting and we don't just lay down and die and get consumed, by the dragon. So I encourage you today that if you've been struggling with in some area of your life with habits, thoughts, attitudes, patterns, behaviors, that you're not defeated. You don't have to be defeated. Because ultimately, if you know Jesus Christ, you can be the victor and a victor in him. So as we look at these three satanic symbols, we recognize that we do have a strategy. We learn from this text that he's given us insights into what Satan is like because God wants us to know his strategies, even though our enemy is great. I want to encourage you to go ahead and bow, bow your head and close your eyes as you search your heart and search your soul today as we looked at those three satanic symbols. The serpent, serpent, the lion, and the dragon. We have to know three S's. I would encourage you to commit these to memory. Three S's that will help you have victory over Satan and those symbols. The first S is the scriptures. Know the scriptures. Spend time in God's word, understanding who God is and what he has done for you and understanding his traits and characteristics like his goodness. Because when you are firmly founded in the faith, then you won't be deceived because you'll know the truth. I want to encourage you right now, if that's something you struggle with, make a commitment to the Lord and say, God, I want to get to know you better through your word. And I want to know the scriptures so that I can have victory. Know the scriptures. The second S today. Know the strategies. Know the strategies. It was once said that in order to have victory, we have to know our enemy. And that is true. And Satan God gives us pictures of Satan in Scripture and his strategies so that we can know how he operates. And when we know his strategies, we will hedge up our weaknesses so that we can't be defeated. Know the strategies. If there is something in your life that is causing you to be defeated regularly, confess that right now before the Lord and ask him to help you know his word and to know Satan's strategies so that you can have victory in those areas. Share it with another believer, brother or sister in Christ. 
so that they can help you stay alert and watchful. Know the scriptures, know the strategies, and finally and most importantly, know the Savior. Because you have no hope for any kind of spiritual victory in life apart from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. When you know the Savior, Savior, he gives you the spiritual empowerment to be able to say no and to be able to see those routes of escape when you are tempted. Know the Savior because he is ultimately the one who has victory over Satan. And if you don't know the Savior, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, I want to encourage you, talk with myself, reach out to me, one of our ministry leaders, because we'd love to show you from God's Word what it means to have a victorious life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much for these pictures and these satanic symbols in your Word that you reveal to us the kind of enemy that we face, the big, bad, evil guy, the one who seeks to consume us and destroy us. But God, thank you for victory, for the ability to win over him, to be able to live victorious Christian lives in the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that one day he will ultimately be entirely defeated by you. Thank you for that hope that we find in you and that encouragement. And I pray that we would persevere until the end as your saints. And it is in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the great lion. Amen.